you have a Bible, go ahead and open it to page 555 or 556. We're still in the book of Ecclesiastes. We'll be there uh, for the rest of the fall, at least up and through November, with a few breaks uh, coming up in between. Uh, Before we read this portion of Scripture, I want to remind us that last week we looked at community or relationships under the sun, essentially. And um, we looked at what the fall created in us, which was a self-centeredness, and now how that has affected our relationships with one another, certainly with God, but certainly with one another, and how we are more prone to be turned in on ourselves and to think about what is best for me as opposed to what is best for we. Well, now we come to a section in chapter 5 where the preacher gets us to look at not just our communities under the sun, but also church under the sun. What would that look like in a fallen world? And so let us uh, give our attention to the reading of of God's word found in the book of of Ecclesiastes chapter 5, verses 1 to 7. Guard your steps when you go to the house of the Lord. To draw near to listen is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools, for they do not know what they are doing. They don't know that they are doing evil. Excuse me. Be not rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God. For God is in heaven and you are on earth. Therefore, let your words be few. For a dream comes with much busyness and a fool's voice with many words. When you vow a vow to God, do not delay paying it. For he has no pleasure in fools. Pay what, you, pay what you vow, for it is better that you should not vow than that you should vow and not pay. Let not your mouth lead you into sin, and do not say before the messenger, that is what, or that was a mistake, excuse me. I have like all these translations going through my mind right now, I'm sorry. Um, let me just read what's in front of me. Why should God be angry at your voice and destroy the work of your hands? For when dreams increase and words grow many, there is vanity. But God is the one you must fear. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would graciously give us your spirit. I pray that you would do a miracle this morning. And by miracle, that you would soften hardened hearts. That you would open our eyes and ears that we would hear and see things otherwise that we cannot. Uh, Would you be glorified and lifted up? Would you be made known? We ask this in your son's name. Amen. I grew up in the South, and uh, one of the things, if you grew up in the South, and I know that's not Texas, there's Texas and there's the South, I'm learning that, but when you grow up in the South, you hear the word hypocrite a lot, and as you might probably hear in Texas as well, and you hear the word hypocrite, and it's always dished out, interesting enough, at people who go to church, I don't know if you've noticed this either, but when, when that word would come into contact with whatever conversation or whoever I would be talking with, it was always the come up, it was certain to come up, I will say, I'll say it this way, if we were talking about church people and them doing something they shouldn't be doing, immediately we'd throw out the word hypocrite. For example, someone in the church maybe got arrested this weekend or this week and we wanted to talk about that. Of course, that wouldn't be gossip, It'd be prayer requests, right? Um, maybe somebody uh, fell into some type of immorality of Uh, of sorts. Maybe someone went to church, happened to get angry outside of church, maybe at a ball field during their kid's game and said some bad things to someone in public, whatever it was, the first words were always, can you believe what so-and-so did? 
they are such a hypocrite. Is what would naturally follow. You, I can tell by the grins. You're free. This is okay. We're tracking. This is not foreign to y'all. Y'all know exactly what what I'm talking about here. Well, it wouldn't be until years later when I finally sort of began to accept this phrase a little bit, especially through conversations with people that I loved, to accept the phrase where you know you're right. The church is full of hypocrites, and I am one of them. But we live in a world where, for some reason, we think that just because you come into this place, just because you say you go to church, that somehow, by magically coming in through this stone and drywall and to sit in these pews, that you are magically changed into a person who no longer has the bug of self-centeredness, if you will, who no longer has the problems of, uh, of struggling with whatever it is that you might struggle with, and in one sense, we confuse this line of what it means to be put up on a pedestal or maybe even what it means to be Jesus, the person we follow to begin with, that we would call them hypocrites. Well, when we talk about life under the sun, what we begin to see as the preacher begins to show us in chapter five is that, you know, essentially what happens when you take a bunch of self-centered people in the world and you put them in a church is you get a bunch of self-centered people in church. That's what he wants to show us. And he wants to show us this. It, it really is connected to chapter 4. Because even if you leave church because people are hypocrites here. To go find your own people over here. You're going to find out really quickly that those are. This is another brand of hypocrites. Like we all have this problem. And what the pastor really shows us through this text. Through wisdom. Is that the problem with being hypocritical if you will. Is because we are people who naturally come into this world with divided hearts. We have divided hearts. We have hearts that are not set on solely worshiping God. They are set on perhaps participating at times, but we are divided into other places as well. And as we look at this text and we consider that, we begin to ask ourselves, well, what should we think about worship? What should we think about ourselves as we come into this place every Sunday Is there a way to come into God's house each day or each Sunday? And what should that be? And Solomon is writing here, we've got to remember, to Jews, to be Christians essentially today. Not unbelievers. And he's holding to a first and second commandment view of worship. That there's one God, Yahweh, and you should have no other. And to serve other gods is this thing called idolatry. And that is to have a divided heart. It is to have a divided heart in your life, in your worship. But what God longs for is undivided heart worshipers. And this is Solomon's point in chapter 5. This morning I want to look at four implications here for what a divided heart looks like from the text. Again, this is church under the sun. This shouldn't surprise us. We shouldn't be alarmed that there are people in here just as there are people out there. Dealing with self-centeredness. We'll just leave it at that. Having problems following the law. Okay? So we'll get four implications. I don't have those on your, in your bulletin. But we'll get four implications. And we'll see how the gospel then fixes uh, this problem for us. Okay? So the first is a divided heart, as we look at this text, doesn't know what it believes. Or another way to put that, a divided heart lacks conviction. 
context here in this, in this book and in this chapter specifically is worship. I'll just say this chapter, not this book. It's, it's worship. It's temple worship as, as Solomon starts out. He says, guard your steps when you go to the house of God. To draw near to listen is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools. Well, what is the sacrifice of fools? It is religion under the sun. It's church people doing church things, but without any sort of conviction about what they are doing. In Solomon's day, it can be summarized by everything he mentions in this section. It's worship without reverence, we would say. Without fear. It's piety or the perception of external holiness, like I have it all together. In the form of big promises, vows. But never really following through because when the messenger comes to collect... Uh, I don't know if I signed up for that. The sacrifice of fools is a posture, we could say. It's an attitude when approaching worship that says, this isn't really important to me, but I'll go through the motions anyway. It is a lack of self-knowledge or self-awareness. Instead of recognizing that you are what's wrong with the church, you might think that you're actually God's gift to the church. As G.K. Chesterton famously said, when asked, what is wrong with the church today? He replied, I am. This sort of self-awareness and self-knowledge is absent from the one whose heart is divided and lacks conviction about God as revealed to us in Scripture. The sacrifice of fools is also the absence of what I would call just the transparency in one's life. Instead of a freedom to be honest about who you are, about what God has done in your life, and what he is doing in your life, you hide. You think, you think that, that, that to show those things, to be vulnerable in that way, to be transparent in that way, is not what it means to have an undivided heart to worship God. So you hide. You think the point, of, the point of church in the first place is to say, I'm better than you. And we would never say this verbally, but yet again, we don't have to because of our attitude and our posture. All these things together, transparency, self-knowledge, or self-awareness, and posture, point to what is meant by the sacrifice of fools that Solomon is referring. It is religion under the sun. It is church people doing church things, but lacking little conviction, or even apathy even would be a better word, for what they are doing and why they are doing it. And this person is not an undivided worshiper of God. Again, they are divided worshipers. But before moving on, I want to be clear. When I say conviction, that does not mean that we have to come in here every Sunday with it all figured out, with it all put together, right? We don't have to have all of our doctrine and theology in the right places. That's not what we mean by conviction. There's room here. Yes, there's room. Yay and amen for us to be able to come into this place still with our questions, to be able to have the freedom to explore those questions. Absolutely. That is not what I mean, though, by conviction is to say that you have to have this all together. Lacking conviction in this sense, though, is more keen to apathy. It's not caring from what the text is giving us. It is one who has no drive to learn more about what they believe and why. They just want to show up, be seen, and to get on with their lives. Because what's happening in this temple, what's happening in this church, is not the center of their lives. Something else is. And that is why they are divided. So this is the first thing. Divided heart lacks conviction. Next, we see that, that because the divided heart lacks conviction, 
it tends to speak first and to listen second. And this idea of speaking foolish things and listening second is riddled throughout verses 3 and 7. Notice the language of the text. Be not rash with your mouth. Right? And of course, if you are familiar with the Proverbs, there's, there, there's tons of Proverbs that speak about our speak. Don't let your heart be hasty or quick to utter a word before God. Therefore, let your words be few. A, fool, a fool's voice is many words. To say a divided heart speaks first and to listen second first is not a shot at extroverts. Let's maybe just clear the air there for a little bit. Right? It's not, you know, we're not, we're not saying that there's a problem here with having to talk a lot, thankfully. Maybe I'm wanting to read that into the text. I don't know, but I don't think that's what it means. It is a problem rather with order and place. Notice how the text finishes. Don't let your heart be quick to utter a word before God, for God is in heaven and you are here on earth. See, Solomon is referring to the distance that exists between the worshiper and God. And he's not talking about travel distance. He's talking about righteousness distance or what we might call holy distance. And Solomon is reminding us by saying this, that God is holy and you are not. So don't come into God's presence blabbing your mouth. Don't come into God's presence saying things you think God wants you to hear as if he isn't all-knowing, all-powerful, and holy. Instead, come inside to listen is his command. Live small, as we have said this series. Live small in the house of God. Let your words be few. And we get this sort of, I think, with hospitality today. You know, if you're invited into someone's house... And maybe let's sort of paint this up. Maybe it's somebody's house that, you know, you just, well, I can't believe they invited me for dinner. Um, you know, we're going to this place or, you know, they're just, you have this sort of reverence for them even. And, and, and if you were going there, you wouldn't, as they open the door, you know, burst in and throw yourself on the couch and kick your socks and shoes off and say, hey, when's dinner ready? By the way, I'm thirsty. Like that wouldn't happen, I think, for most of us in this room. When we engage in hospitality, there's a sense of reverence. There's a sense of, I'm going to respect this engagement here, this invitation even. Um, And I'm going to tread lightly and I'm going to ask questions, but I'm going to listen. I think Solomon's pointing us in that direction. Or maybe if we just kind of go to architecture, right? If you've been in any type of Gothic cathedral uh, between the 12th, 13th century and 16th century, you know, when you walk into these places, your breath is immediately taken away, literally and figuratively. That's how they're designed. You walk in there and you, you, you don't want to open your mouth because it then echoes forever. And now everybody's looking at you, but they're so incredibly, they're just gorgeous. They're, they, they, they naturally close our mouths because they speak of the, the largeness of God, the otherness of God what we might call holy, they invite us to live small. And so Solomon closes this little section with a proverb there in verse three, for a dream comes with much busyness, business, and a fool's voice with many words. And a dream here is meant with a metaphorical sense that he has big dreams. You know, he's got, he's got all these plans, right? They're going to change the world. Let me tell you what I'm going to do. Let me tell you what I need. What, what, you know, listen to me. And the context means that fools here seek to advance themselves before God with great ideas, many words, and promises. And a divided heart here talks first because it is ultimately his or her agenda that they are seeking to advance. They tell people what they want to hear in order to get what they want. And certainly we should be thinking about that word gain we talked about two weeks ago. 
that these are people that, that, that just as outside of God's temple and outside of his house, they come in as well, seeking to gain something in this life, thinking, seeking to be able to, to winsomely win themselves something, a favor before God, maybe, or even a reputation within their community. And of course, as we consider this from the valley floor, we know that that's not what life is for. That there's nothing to be gained here, both outside, but also inside God's house of worship. It is a gift. And as we receive that gift, that posture that we receive it in is one of which gratitude, which means our ears are open and our mouths are closed. And Solomon is saying, if Solomon is saying anything about church under the sun, he is saying just that, that we should be a listening people first, speaking people second. But there is a time to speak, as Solomon continues, and this gets to our third implication. So we looked at how a divided heart lacks conviction. We looked at how a divided heart longs to speak first and listen second, longs to tell God what they think God wants to hear, would be another way to put that. And thirdly, we see that a divided, divided heart shows itself in its commitments. A divided heart shows itself in its commitments. Verse 4 speaks of making vows. Sort of an interesting topic for us. What is it? What is a vow? What is it? What, do we make vows today? What is this about? Vows are promises of sorts. Many of you have made vows in your lives. Perhaps uh, membership vows if you've joined the church. Baptismal vows. Marital vows if you've been married. And what's interesting throughout scripture is vows are not mandated or something that God asks us to do, although they are acceptable. And you see people throughout scripture making these vows. Sometimes you see people making vows that are proper and good. Sometimes you see people, though, making vows that are rash and unwise. But one type of vow that Solomon would have in mind here, given the context of the, of the chapter being that of worship, would be Deuteronomy 23. And I'll read this for you. This is verses 21. If you make a vow to the Lord, this is what Moses says in Deuteronomy, you shall not delay fulfilling it for the Lord your God will surely require it of you and you will be guilty of sin. But if you refrain from vowing, you will not be guilty of sin. You shall be careful to do what has passed your lips for you have voluntarily vowed to the Lord your God what you have promised with your mouth. And so the problem that Solomon is showing us through this is that we don't have a problem making vows. Anybody can make a vow. What we have a problem with is keeping them. For example, commentators speak of the practice in the temple worship of someone making a rash and meaningless vow to offer up an animal of sacrifice, you know, where we might get really animated uh, in, in a church service such as this one with dancing in the aisles and all that goes on on a regular Sunday morning. We can laugh at that. Come on. Okay. Wow. Sorry. Somebody might, in the midst of temple worship, you know, offer an animal for sacrifice out of their own private stock. Might get caught up with the emotion. And then after the whole thing's over, when the messenger comes to collect that, there's a little bit of, whoa, whoa, I didn't really mean that. That was a mistake. And a lot of that is because we all know, or at least we have some information about how, you know, monetarily, that was, that was money for people. That was expensive for them to give that over and so in this way, their commitments, uh, their divided heart shows itself in their commitments. Jesus will put it this way in Matthew 5. Just let your yes be yes and your no be no. Don't come up with excuses. Be honest. 
Now, we might not make rash vows to offer our pets or animals today for sacrifice. Thank you, Jesus, since we don't have to do that anymore. But we could certainly see this paralleling with the modern church and tithing today. And the way that we deal with our finances. Some interesting statistics show that the average tithe for all Christians beyond Presbyterian, all evangelical Christians in the United States, tithe at 3%. Per capita, Christians today give less today than during the Great Depression. It's one of the hardest statistics coming out about giving. Uh, Relevant Magazine wrote a good piece on this back in 2016 in March with, with a story titled, What Would Happen if the Church Tithe? And it's not a piece to guilt us into giving. We don't want to do that. But it's actually a piece to open our eyes to see what could happen if we actually tithe to the church. But it's not just the church. It's human money. It's a human money problem as well. 50% of Americans have more debt than savings right now. 25% have no savings at all. And 15% of people in America today are on track to fund just one year of retirement with savings. So what's the point? Money is an excellent indicator as to where our commitments are. Follow the money. And again, it's not a guilt and shame tactic. It's just the truth. I would encourage you, if you haven't, to get the app mint.com. Or not .com, just mint. I'm such a 90s kid. And... It'll scare you to death because it'll track every penny, but it'll, it could save your life too. But money in this sense, you know, it's not the perfect indicator to show us of our commitments, but it does show us where they lie when we begin to follow where we spend our dollars. But as we all promise to give more next year, one thing that remains to be true is that the statistics that keep coming out remain the same. So here we are with our vows and our promises, but when the messenger comes to collect, where are we? Again, the problem, the problem is not with making vows, according to Solomon, it's keeping them. Let your yes be yes and your no be no. For it is better to not vow than to vow and not pay. That's a divided heart and how it shows itself in its commitments. Lastly, a divided heart fears the wrong things. The only, per, only person, as we look through this, who would put on a show at church, who would talk first and listen second, and make vows publicly only to back out later, is a person whose fears are in the wrong place. And this, to me, drives us closer to the burden of this text. That is, we are not a people without fear. We are a people who have fears in the wrong places. Let me say that again. We are not a people who fear the wrong, who, who, who do not fear. We are a people who, who fear the wrong things. And a divided heart is the direct product of the fall in Genesis 3 that we looked at. Where our hearts are divided and where fear as a consequence has entered into that space. We are not a people without fear. We are a people who fear the wrong things. We fear man. We fear opinions, we fear relationships, we fear commitment, we fear not having enough, we fear not being happy, we fear missing out, we fear making wrong decisions, we fear making right decisions, we fear failure, we fear everything around us and each other. But are these the right fears according to chapter 5? Are these the things that should have control over our lives? 
But here's the thing. Guess where these types of people, right? Guess where these types of people controlled by so many fears, guess where they gather on Sunday? Right here. They come right into this very building. You might be sitting by one. So guard your steps, right? Not just for your own reverence, but guard your steps as you enter because self-centered people come into this room and they live here and they worship here and they are you and they are me. As I read this and as I've read this this week and have tried to dive into this text, I found myself avoiding this. And this just wasn't some spell of procrastination. This was like, I don't like this. Because I want to read this and I want to make this an us and them dichotomy. I really do. I want to say, guard your steps when you enter the house of the Lord so as not to be like those fools over there. Namely, anyone not named me. I'm avoiding this text because who I need to be guarding myself from is me. As Walter White would say, I'm the danger. If you're familiar with that film show. Every time I get in that car, every time the kids are dressed up and we put them in there, we drive down healing and we enter this parking lot. We walk through those doors. I'm the danger because I'm divided. Solomon is showing me. I avoided this text because I'm the reason people hate church. I am self-centered. I make vows and I don't keep them perfectly. Maybe even I could say I don't keep them well. And we could look at my ordination vows. We could look at my marital vows. We could look at my, my baptismal vows. Pick one. I'm not sure how good of a job I'm doing listening first and speaking second. And while I have conviction about God's word, I certainly have apathy too. Hearts divided or divided hearts fear the wrong things. And guess what? I fear all the wrong things. So what do we do? How does this text redeem people like myself and maybe people like you? We have to get closer to this word fear because the fear of the Lord is what makes our hearts single-minded or undivided. And it is the fear of God that generates wise worshipers, undivided worshipers, which is what the Lord wants. As Paul would write in Romans 3.18, which is the reason that life under the sun is life under the sun, is because there is no fear of God before their eyes. And he's not just talking to people out there, friends. He's talking to you and he's talking to me. It is a big deal throughout the Bible, this idea of fear. It's talked about and it's demonstrated in many different ways. For Moses, when we come into contact with him in this book, of, in the book of Exodus, when he comes into contact with this burning bush, this theophany of God's presence, for Moses, it's sandals off, it's mouth shut, and it's ears open. As he approaches God for Isaiah, when he is, is given, when he is anointed as a prophet, when he comes into the presence of the Lord, what are his words? Woe is me. And that is that is a word that, that, that says, I don't I don't belong here at all. I don't need to be here. As a matter of fact, I should be struck dead at this very moment. We, we lose so much of what this word means just by reading it. 
It is, it, is, it is the true definition of fear, for I am lost, he says. And then for Jesus, who embodies this fear, it is a swift clearing out of that temple. You're watching Jesus go around, heal people, right? Doing all kinds of great things, kissing babies, shaking hands. And all of a sudden, he gets to the temple. And what happened here? It takes us aback a little bit. That's that reverence. That's what Solomon's directing us towards. Do we have that? How do we get that fear in us? How do we have reverence in this way? How do we move from all the things that we just described earlier? Lack of conviction, speaking first, commitments, shaky at best, and putting our fears in all the wrong places. How do we get this good fear in us? And you want to know the answer to that? It's a tired answer, but it's a wonderful answer. It's grace. Grace is the only thing that will put the fear of you in a way that causes you to come into this place to listen first. When we spend time with God in Scripture, when we allow Him to show us and to tell us who He is and not the other way around, we realize pretty quickly that we don't belong in His presence, but He invades ours anyway. After all, what is He doing showing up in the form of a bush but invading Moses' life? This is grace. And grace tells us, I don't deserve this, but I'm welcome here. (laughs) I don't deserve this, but I'm welcome here. Therefore, I will guard myself as I enter this place. I will not make promises I have no intention or no way of knowing I I will keep them. I will not act as though God doesn't know the secrets of my heart. He knows all. So grace says, I don't deserve this, but at the same time, you're welcome here. And in this way, grace is the only thing that gives us the proper understanding for biblical fear that we need to think wisely about worship as Solomon is directing our attention towards. If fear is scary, trembling fear, the type of fear where you really are uncomfortable around somebody in the sense that they are intimidating and they threaten you and maybe they abuse you. If that's the type of fear that we're talking about, then you will never give yourself to God. You will will never trust giving yourself over to him. You will say, you will say and do things that you think he wants to hear, but you will not trust him as somebody who can be trusted. So it can't be that type of fear, right? But if we don't fear God at all, right? If, If fear doesn't exist in our lives, then we enter and worship as though he has benefited by my presence that I'm doing him favors for showing up that we might give ourselves away, then we might give ourselves away to God. We might make commitments to God, but only when it benefits us, only when it's convenient for us, only when I am finding joy and pleasure from that. But once that is gone, I'm out of here. I'll go find some other place. In that way, we might think of ourselves uh, religious or Christian, but in our hearts, we remain divided because we are not committing ourselves to him, his church and his people. And there are so many ways that we can, we actually are gifted to actually do this, to commit ourselves through vows of membership, for example, having our commitment expressed locally in a real place, not just sort of out there committing ourselves through our possessions and our finances. We just looked at that, but committing ourselves through service too. But ultimately committing ourselves through love, which cannot happen if I'm not in front of you or next to you or bumping shoulders with you in the hallway. Without fear, this cannot happen. We go along as far as it benefits us. In other words, I will not suffer with you if I'm not committed to you, if I don't fear the Lord. 
the way that Jesus suffered for us because he was committed to us. I won't do that if I don't fear God. But that's how grace changes us, doesn't it? That's how grace gives us this, I don't deserve this, but I'm welcome here, fear. And how it prepares our hearts and our minds to think wisely about what we do here because we are beginning with the fear of the Lord. It forces us to ask, why don't I deserve this? Why don't I deserve God's favor and presence? Well, we were reminded again of what Solomon has showed us, that he is up here and you're down here. There is a holiness gap, if you will. And when Solomon talks about the temple, he is literally saying to these people, when you go to the house of God, remember the blood you spill for sacrifice should be your own, but it's not. It is an animal. It is the cost of being close. God is saying it is how a holy God invades an unholy place. But ultimately, it's my divided heart that says I don't belong here. And we know this. Right? Just think for a second of a child who's been gifted a trip to Disney World. And once it gets there, he or she, all they do is complain. All they do is throw food on the floor. All they do is just act as though, you know, this is, like, is this the only thing we're going to do today? Why did you bring me here? They complain, right? Think, you, can, you can imagine this. I don't know if you can. What do you want to do with that child? Besides drop kick them back home, Right? How much more with a God who is holy being around us, a people who are not? See, what is it, what is it about this child that pains us? It's, is it the disobedience? Eh, that's being a child. Is it the self-centeredness? Eh, it's the, the dividedness, isn't it? It's the divided heart of that child. Doesn't fear, this child doesn't fear you, isn't committed to you as a loving person who has brought them to Disney. Never listens or only talks back. And if he or she ever did something you asked, it would probably be to get something that he or she wants. Sound familiar? Which would mean doing something only because it's what you think that they want you to do or that it's convenient for them. Does this child deserve Disney? No. How much more with a God who is holy being around the people who are not? Do we deserve a temple to worship in, friends? No. But why do we get one? Why are we welcomed here? Why are you welcomed here? Why am I welcomed here? Because Jesus came and he bled for your divided heart. He looked at your divided heart and he said, I want a piece of that. I don't want a piece of that. I want the whole thing. I want all of it. He put himself on a cross while saying, forgive them. They know not what they do. That's grace. And that, friends, is the only thing that changes us from people who are divided to being undivided worshipers of him. Grace puts fear in our hearts, the kind that reminds us that we don't deserve this loving act of God, but we are welcome here anyway. And grace teaches us to guard our steps as we come into the house of God and to listen. Therefore, it is grace-based fear that actually begins to change this church under the sun into grace-based religion you will. And this, friends, is actually attractive to people. That's what caught me. It's a transparency, as we noted at the beginning, that says, I'm not better than you. It's a self-knowledge or self-awareness that knows I'm the problem with the church. Will you forgive me? 
And it's a posture that says, I'm not just here to feel good about myself or to have others think well of me. I'm here because this is where real life is found, where dead men and women are being made new. Come with me. Certainly, this is what the church was meant to be. Certainly, this is what Jesus' blood came to recover. Now, here under the sun, the question for us as we leave here is, how might we continue to recover what was lost at Eden, but also what was made new again by resurrection? To model to people the love of Christ and the grace that he extends to you through our worship. And and that's where, that's where it starts. It starts right here. May we beg God for his mercy to show us and to create in us what it means to be undivided heart worshipers fueled by grace based fear that says, I don't deserve this, but I am welcomed here anyway, because that is a place that Fort Worth needs more than any other place. Amen. Let me pray for us. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word to us in Ecclesiastes 5 and how it points us in a place and in a direction that maybe we don't want to look. But it shows us more clearly your grace and your love for us and that we have a place here to come and meet with you that we don't, we, we did nothing to deserve to have, but we have it and we're welcome here. Would that grace shape us? Would it create in us a fear that changes the way that we think about ourselves and others, the way that we come into this place, the way that we think about you? Would you do that work in us through Jesus, we pray. Amen.